Amos 9 verse 1, I saw the Lord standing by the altar and he said, strike the tops of the pillars so that the thresholds shake. Bring them down on the heads of all the people. Those who are left I will kill with the sword. No one will get away. None will escape. Though they dig down to the depths below, from there my hand will take them. Though they climb up to the heavens above, from there I will bring them down. Though they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, there I will hunt them down and seize them. Though they hide from my eyes at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent to bite them. Though they are driven into exile by their enemies, there I will command the sword to slay them. I will keep my eye on them for harm and not for good. The Lord, the Lord Almighty, he touches the earth and it melts and all who live in it mourn, the whole land rises like the Nile and sinks like the river of Egypt. He builds his lofty palace in the heavens and sets its foundation on the earth. He calls for the waters of the sea. He pulls them out over the face of the land. The Lord is his name. Are not you Israelites the same to me as the Cushites, declares the Lord? Did I not bring Israel up from Egypt, the Philistines from Kaftor and the Arameans from Kerr? Surely the eyes of the Sovereign Lord are on the sinful kingdom. I will destroy it in the face of the earth, yet I will not destroy totally the descendants of Jacob, declares the Lord. For I will give the command and I will shake the people of Israel among all the nations as grain is shaken in a sieve and not a pebble will reach the ground. All the sinners among my people will die by the sword. All those who say disaster will not overtake or meet us. In that day, I will restore David's fallen shelter. I will repair its broken walls and restore its ruins and will rebuild it as it used to be so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord, who will do these things. The days are coming, declares the Lord when the reaper will be overtaken by the ploughman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills and I will bring my people back from exile. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. If you go onto Oprah Winfrey's webpage, um, you can find 14 inspirational quotations regarding the topic of hope. All kinds of angles on hope, all kinds of ideas and things to consider, all kinds of quotations to make us feel warm. A couple of them for you. You are full of unshaped dreams. You are laden with beginnings. There is hope in you. If we get to the place where we show up as our genuine selves and let each other see who we really are, the awe-inspiring ripple effect will change the world. You can probably guess, I'm not that sure how helpful the quotes are. Because the thing that unites them is that when we put our hope in humanity and the inherent good of humanity, whether as individuals or collectively together, when that is where we put our hope, I'm not sure how hopeful we should be, if I'm honest. In fact, our track record is one such that we might think there's good evidence for us not to be particularly hopeful when it's all about us. 
shepherds, they are track record is the absolute opposite from where we might find hope. That's true if you um, watch the news at the moment, or you read the papers, or you look on the internet. It's certainly true as we've worked our way through Amos um, these past couple of months. This is the end of our series, as you've probably spotted. And it's a hopeful end. At least, the final bit is hopeful. But it's hopeful not because of how good humanity is, not because we're looking inside and finding hope, or looking around us at one another and finding hope, but it's hopeful because of who God is. Have a look down at the chapter um, with me. It's page 94 and 95. Um, and as you'll see, it's the proverbial game of two halves, although it's not quite two halves. It's more like two-thirds for the first half and one-third for the second half. Two-thirds more bad news, verse 1 to 10. And then the final third half is good news. I'm going to spend comparatively more time in the good news section in the second half. Not because I'm not prepared to give the bad news, but in one sense, that is the new material. Actually, Amos has laid it on week on week for us, and I'm sure we've felt some of that. Um, but we're not going to skip 1 to 10, because there's some interesting stuff in there as well. Um, so have a look down with me. If, you, if you're a note-taker, verse 1 to 10, judgment is inescapable and fair. It's striking, the vision that Amos sees, it's another vision this time, it's, it's a vision of the Lord standing in the temple at Bethel, we assume. He's standing by the altar in their place of worship. Do you remember, this is the centre for worship. Um, this is the epicentre for rebellion, therefore. It's from here that the people claim they worship God with their heart and yet know nothing of him. It's from here that the, the so-called priests will seek to be or pretend to be pointing people to the Lord but actually pointing away from him they, they're very confused as to what he's like they know nothing of what he really cares about what really matters when it comes to worshipping the Lord God hates hypocrisy and particularly amongst those who claim to worship him and, and particularly even amongst those who lead others in worship of him and so it's striking that this is the epicentre of where the judgement will be felt this religious community will feel the full brunt of his righteous anger, it seems. There's actually been an earthquake, I'm not sure if this works, ominously hovering um, in the background throughout all of Amos. It actually started in 1 verse 1, if you remember, if you were here a couple of months ago. The words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa, the vision he saw concerning Israel two years before the earthquake, when Uzziah was king of Judah and Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, was king of Israel. And actually then, if you read carefully through Amos, it's kind of hinted in at least chapter 2, 3, 6 and 8. I can give you some verses later if you like. But that's kind of been there in the background and suddenly at the climax, chapter 9, here the earthquake comes, the prophecy ends, the earthquake arrives, the temple will collapse and they won't escape it. It's impossible for these rebellious people, particularly this religious community at the temple, to escape God's judgment. The thing that I've seen for the first time this week, um, in this chapter actually, is that the language from verse 2 to verse 4 um, terrifyingly riffs off Psalm 139. I don't know if you heard that as I read it. You think, oh, there's some familiar concepts and ideas going on there. I'm going to read um, Psalm 139, verse 11 to 11 for us. Uh, sorry, verse 7 to 11 for us, Psalm 139. Um, you keep an eye on Amos 9, 2-4. to 
See if you can see some of the parallels going on. King David, um, Psalm 139, often a very warm psalm. King David says, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the day will hide me and light become night around me. And yet where in Psalm 139, that's to be a massive encouragement. That's the kind of warm and fuzzy psalm where we go for comfort when we're feeling low or distant. Actually, in Amos 9, it's terrifying. Feeling that God will judge and you can't escape it. And if you try digging into the depths below, that's not going to help. And if you try climbing up to the heavens, that's not going to help. If you try hiding on Carmel, the highest point at the time it seems, that won't do anything. If you go to the, even to the depths of the sea, well, just like Jonah, you will find God is there as well. And if you're driven into the nations um, in exile, well, you won't get away with it there either. No, it's, it's Psalm 139, but God's presence for his rebellious people is bad news because God is just. And like Adam and Eve, they might try and hide from him. But it's useless because God finds them. The question might be, how can God be this kind of a God? How can God do this to these people? A question for us might be, does our view of God stretch for him to be this kind of a God? Where do we get our ideas of God from? From his revelation of himself or from the kind of God we would like him to be or imagination or whatever it might be. Verse 5 to 6 seems to give us um, a little sort of doxology, a little short hymn of praise in the midst of this um, chapter. We've had a couple of other doxologies as well. Again, if you're taking notes, 4 verse 13, 5 verse 8. At times Amos just seems to press pause and kind of wax lyrical about who God is. But this little doxology seems to show us the true nature of God and how it is that he's able to be this kind of a God. Verse 5, the Lord, the God, the Lord Almighty, he touches the earth and it melts all who live in it, mourn, the whole land rises like the Nile and sinks like the river of Egypt. He builds his lofty palace in the heavens, he sets its foundation on the earth, he calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out over the face of the land, the Lord is his name. And Amos says, don't forget God's power. This is how he can do this. Don't forget his providence. Don't forget his creative abilities. They're not simply ideas or abstract theories. No, that is what God is like. He is far above us. He's the kind of God who will find you because he's the God who made it all. Which means positively we can build on him. He's trustworthy, he's faithful, he's reliable, he's dependable, but negatively we flout his law, then there are consequences, says Amos. So verse 5, the Egyptian slave masters found that out. Because God drove back the seas, he routed Egypt. This is what our God is like, and so these are the implications of that for his people. Then in 7-10, to 10, and I'm moving fairly quickly through this um, first half, he asks them two questions, and they are slightly unusual questions. Um, verse 7. It seems like he's 
seeking to pop their pride and their pomp because he reminds them of his power. So he brought them out of Egypt. They are his prized possessions, yes, but he's also completely sovereign in moving other nations around as well, he says. It's as if he's saying, guys, you think you're so special. And in one sense you are special because you're my particular people, but don't forget I am a God of the whole world. You're, you're not all that without me, he says. He pops their prize by showing them how powerful he is and the fact that they are anything is because of him. He's the God of all the nations. And then in 8-10 to 10, you get various distinctions that he draws out for us. Uh, let me read them again. And this is kind of where you see some of the language from earlier in the chapter and indeed earlier in the prophecy, there are some distinctions that he begins to make here for us in 8, 9 and 10. Um, So he says in verse 8, Surely the eyes of the sovereign Lord are on the sinful kingdom. I will destroy it from the face of the earth. I think that sounds a bit harsh. But then I will not destroy it totally. I will not destroy it totally, the descendants of Jacob, declares the Lord. For I will give the command and I will shake the people of Israel among all the nations as grain is shaken in a sieve and not a pebble will reach the ground. All the sinners among my people who die by the, will die by the sword. All those who say disaster will not overtake or meet us. I said there is a remnant who will survive. Those who have heard Amos and acted and reacted to the warnings. He will not, verse 8, utterly destroy the house of Israel. Verse 10, it's simply that the stubborn sinners who will not repent, it seems, who say disaster will not overtake or meet us, who think they're okay, those are the people whom the Lord will punish. He uses the example of a sieve, verse 9. Uh, The point about a sieve is that things are sorted. You're making a cake. In one sense, you use a sieve because you want it to be light and fluffy, but actually it does get all the bigger bits out as well. Not everything goes in if it's working properly. Well, so here, the sieve sorts the people. Not a pebble will reach the ground. They will be kept. So it's not all darkness at this point. There is hope at this point. There is hope for those who look to him. There is hope as well as we look to the future. That's how it continues from 11 onwards. As always in the Bible, on the day of the Lord, we get judgment and we get mercy. That's how the day of the Lord always works as you read through the scriptures. Obviously you see it primarily and magnified at the cross. At the day of the Lord there is always judgment and mercy. Verse 11 to 15. Again, if you're taking notes, mercy seen with restoration. Let me read those verses again. <coughs> We're going to spend a bit more time on them, as I said. So, verse 11. In that day I will restore David's fallen shelter. I will repair its broken walls and restore its ruins and will, will rebuild it as it used to be. So that they may possess the remnant of Edom. And all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord, who will do these things. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the ploughman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills and I will bring my people Israel back from exile. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. 
They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. You see, suddenly it's hopeful. It's a new dawn from the darkness from most of the rest of Amos. There have been a few little glimpses of light. Suddenly the sun rises. In many ways the language might feel quite far from us. Lots of Bible imagery going on here. Lots of Bible language. I'll I'll try and help us to understand it and more than that to sort of feel something of it in our hearts. It is worth just saying that um, if we've read Amos carefully, we will know that he's not just sort of pulled a rabbit out of the hat at the end of the prophecy. Um, right the way through, I think there's been hope, glimpses of hope for those who will turn to the Lord. We've seen that God is faithful and patient, that the warnings that Amos has given are meant to be acted upon. They're meant to bring forth a change in behaviour, meant to bring forth repentance. Or, or last week, chapter 8, do you remember Amos was there pleading for them? pleading for his people, well, the northern kingdom, they weren't really his people. And God relented, it says. So this, these last sort of four or five verses, it's not a huge change in direction. Ta-da! Now, this is the gathering up of various threads, if we've read it carefully, in the previous eight chapters. Three things to point out. Now, firstly, he's the Lord of history. That is, history is going somewhere. That is, this is clearly an oracle of the future. You get it in verse 11, in that day. Um, It's there as well in verse 13. The days are coming. History is going somewhere. The message of the Bible is that history is not random. Not just a random set of events meandering here, there and everywhere, but we're going in a particular direction under the Sovereign Lord's control. What will happen? Well, we know as we read on through the Bible that King David's greatest son, King Jesus, will come and will return. And so the Davidic kingdom will be restored, verse 11. Um, It's described, interestingly, as David's fallen shelter, um, which is an unusual evocative image, actually. It's more intriguing than perhaps we think. The actual word is booze. Um, Different translations will talk about David's fallen booze rather than a house. and to be honest, there have been books written as to why he uses that word. It's an unusual word. It's a word associated with worship in the wilderness. It's a word associated with the Feast of Booths from Leviticus. And they may ring bells for you. And so it's a word from the time of Moses. Which is striking. Some think, and I think I'm persuaded, that it's a, it's a combining of David, King David, with Moses. True kinship and true worship again. Which has been really important in Amos, because... Their worship has been disgraceful. Remember they've been going through the motions. They turn up to the temple in Bethel in autopilot. They turn up, they do what needs to be done, but their hearts are far from God. They can sing the words, but actually they're thinking about something else. They're looking at their watches to try and get out, so they can get on and make more money in dishonest and deceitful ways. So David's fallen shelter... Perhaps kingship plus worship combined. And it's striking as well, verse 12, um, that Edom is mentioned. Do you see that there? Why is that striking? Um, Historically, Edom and Jacob schisms. There was a big split. They were at war and they have been 
ever since, from right back in Genesis. And yet finally, um, there will be peace, it seems, in verse 12. A bringing back together, a reuniting of Edom and Jacob. And actually, it's, what's particularly interesting is that Edom later in the Bible is almost used as a euphemism for the Gentiles, non-Jews. And so what is particularly striking, any of you feeling particularly sharp this evening, is that in Acts 15, do you remember in Acts 15, the Council of Jerusalem, you've got the early church trying to get to grips with whether the Gentiles are going to be included in, in with the Gospel. Is, is the Gospel for the Gentiles is a big question. And which passage does James quote to try and, or to justify taking the gospel to the Gentiles? This passage, these verses. Acts 15 and verse 16. After this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it. That the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name says the Lord who does these things. So, Eden becomes a, a euphemism for the rest of mankind. And, James is persuasive, the people are persuaded from the scriptures that indeed Gentiles are co-heirs with Israel of the grace of God. Which I take it for most of us will likely be fabulous news. And I, I guess most of us will be Gentiles at least by birth. It's worth saying as well that that in a hopeless world at the moment, this means we're a people who can have hope. History is going somewhere. <clears throat> we know this is not it. We don't need to look inside for hope. We can look to God and trust Him that history, that His story is moving on as He planned it. That might raise questions, of course it will. But we can have true hope because we trust him. So firstly, um, he's the Lord of history. Secondly, um, he's the Lord of creation. That is, creation will be renewed. That's the kind of language you get from verse 13 um, onwards. And do you remember Amos, through the, the prophecy, there have been various places and times when he's spoken of of famine, of desolation, of plagues, of mildew, of all kinds of things, locusts coming in. Which means if we read these verses in context, you see the contrast. We read a future of abundance, of fertility, of blessing. There's a glorious day, says Amos, when all will be well with the world. When creation is as it's meant to be, when when the curse of Genesis 3 is a thing of the past. Come down, you see some of the metaphors, the imagery. Verse 13, the, the mountains and hills seem to be awash with wine. Fertility of the earth merges into people. They're returning, rebuilding, repopulating. There are vineyards planted. There's abundance and blessing and peace and joy. God's people once again back in God's place. The place he promised them. And they'll be exiled and they'll return, but actually the language goes beyond that as well. It's more than just a return from exile. You know the Assyrians are coming. It's more than a return from exile. It's the blessings of a new creation. 
the promise of the, the, the land to Abraham, but sort of supersized and reimagined for all eternity. It's actually a picture of rest. This is what biblical rest looks like. God providing for his people, God protecting his people, God displaced people back in the land that he promised, and yet it being better than they could ever have imagined. See, verse 14 is really interesting. They, they will rebuild ruined cities and live in them, plant vineyards and drink their wine, make gardens and eat their fruit. And the second half of those sentences are really important. No more building and planting and constructing and then the frustration of not being able to enjoy the fruit of their labours. You know that, don't you? When you, you spend hours doing something and then you don't get to enjoy it. Maybe you make an amazing cake and you bring it along to church lunch and, and you miss it and it's handed out and it's already gone. Probably my kids had it, sorry. But here there will be construction and then enjoyment of the fruit of that. There will be planting and building and yet you get to enjoy those things. Why? Because the enemies will have gone. It's not my kids. It's enemies who will not be there. And so we get to enjoy the things that we've made with God's strength. Biblical rest in one sense is enjoying the blessings of God. It's worth just saying, and you will be aware of this, but we, I think we do easily slip into it, that these blessings are real and tangible and physical and glorious. And we have been disturbed by Philadelphia adverts and hearts and clouds and the unreality of the new heavens and the new earth. Yet Amos gives us a glimpse peace and plenty, protection, perfection. This is what life will be like, says Amos. Maybe you're sick of the frustrations of this life. Maybe you're sick of, of bodies or minds that don't work as they're meant to. Or injustice. Or poverty or toil and hardship and then not being able to enjoy what you've created. Maybe it's Excel spreadsheets that crash when you spend hours crafting it. Maybe it's work that you spend hours on and suddenly it disappears and for some reason the cloud hasn't saved it. Well, our future, our hopes as Amos, will be a place where there is no frustration. That is what the new heavens and the new earth will be like. Third thing, just to bring out, is that he's a God who speaks. I don't know if you spotted that it's the word of the Lord who brings these things about. This is why we can trust that these things will happen. Three times, verse 12, declares the Lord who will do these things. Verse 13, the day of the coming declares the Lord. Verse 15, says the Lord your God at the very end. The last thing ringing in our ears, the fact that God says this, this is not the imagination of Amos, this is not a hypothetical future. These are the words of a trustworthy God who can speak and will act. And his words are powerful. 
a God who makes promises and so therefore a God who keeps promises. He can't break his promises. And so the idea ringing in our minds as we finish is that these things will happen because God has said they will. I wonder, as we come to the end of Amos, I wonder if our daily battle is to believe this stuff. The battle to believe that what God has said is true and will come to pass. Maybe look back down at chapter 9 in its entirety, the battle, verse 1 to 10, to believe that God is there, that he is just, that he will judge, that he is right to judge. Satan's lie in the garden at the very beginning of the Bible is that you will not surely die. And I wonder whether that that lie is ringing in our ears or the ears of our culture, particularly at the moment, where, where death is hidden from us, where we think we're immortal. We think we will be okay. We won't think about death. We, we avoid all we can thinking about death let alone think about what comes after it. And so there's a battle to, to believe God is there, he is just, and he will indeed judge. Will he really judge those around us who don't know him? Is that really the kind of God he is? Maybe that's our battle. More than that, verse 11 to 15, the battle to believe in the hope of what's to come. Again, we live in a sort of tangible Western world. It's the thing that we talk about quite a bit at Modern Road. Things that we see and touch and taste are the things that, that draw us in, that our hearts run after, that we create and we form and we fashion idols. We've got idol factory hearts, etc., etc. And so easily our hearts are duped and our hopes are short-sighted. And yet when we look at what we have to come, and we look at where it's all going, don't we long for a world like this? Don't we long for a world of peace and protection? Perfection. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruits. I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. Don't we long for the new heavens and the new earth? Don't we long for home? Let me pray. Lord, we do confess to you our daily battle to believe that what you say is true. The battle to believe that you are a God who who really cares, who is really just, and who will really judge one day. Lord, we confess how easily we can We can believe the lie that says you will not surely die. We think we're immortal. We think we'll get away with it. We think that we're not accountable to you. And yet we've seen in this chapter that you are... There is nowhere where we can hide from you. We confess as well the battle to believe that that in one sense we have this hope and we can trust you with it. Lord, in, in theory we know these things. And yet in reality, 
our hearts so easily wander after other things and run after other things. We put our hopes in things that are tangible. We put our hope in things that we can see and touch and taste and smell. And so we simply pray this evening that you would help us to to believe you, to trust you in your word, to know that you are powerful and that you are good. Thank you that you are the God who promised his son and indeed you sent his son, your son. Thank you that your son promised that he would rise again and indeed he did rise again. Thank you that you are the God who has promised that one day he will come back. And we pray that you would help us to trust that truth as well and to live in the light of his return and to know that we have a hope because you are the God who does not lie. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.